morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad you're here. Really appreciate you making us your church home for an hour today. We're going to continue with our theme of prayer and end our series today. And we're going to look at uh, John chapter 17, the passage in Scripture where Jesus is praying an extensive prayer. It's the longest prayer we have of him in Scripture. And he's um, spending a, a good amount of time concentrating on what needs to happen with and for the disciples in his absence. So turn with me over to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 20 and 21. John 17, verses 20 and 21. The title of the message is prayer. Timely Upward Conversations. Sermon 3. John 17, 20 through 21, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. 21. That they all may be one, even as you, Father, and I, excuse me, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Lord, help us as we study your word. Four things I want to talk about in this. Um, one, that Christ is actually spending time in prayer with the Father in a lengthy moment under the greatest duress he's ever been in for his own personal life and he's thinking about others. Two, he's asking for these disciples to, to be unified. Three, he's asking for them to be in God, unified with God. And four, the purpose being that the world will know that Jesus was actually sent by the Father. We, we um, theologically call this prayer Christ's high priestly prayer. Now, the reason we, we've monikered it that way is because it's, it's the longest prayer we have in Scripture and it shows the greatest intimacy between him and the Father that we have any other place. Uh, and we see that he acts as a priest here and that he not only communicates with God for himself but on behalf of those who are following him. And Jesus, being the Messiah, the Son of God, embodied all three offices of the Old Testament which were, to this point, pretty much separated. And there were three offices that best represented the totality of the government of God in the earth. There was a king, there was a prophet, and there was a priest. Generally speaking, those offices did not uh, overlap very much. There was a king named Uzziah who tried to make that happen in that he went in to offer incense as a king when he wasn't in the household, wasn't born in the household of Levi, which was the priestly household. And the priests did everything they possibly could to stop him. Please don't do this. And he went in and offered and he broke out in leprosy and he had it till the day of his death. A very sad exhibition of pride thinking that he could embody everything. 
Yet there was one guy that God kind of let get really close to some of that, kind of mingling all three, and that was David. Don't know exactly why, but I do know this, that there were very few people who had David's heart. In fact, God said in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, that there was nobody who had the heart of God like David. I don't know that there are very many many people today that have the heart of God like David. But when you have a heart that wants to do all of God's will and it is not proud, and you've submitted your entire life, all of your being to his purposes, sometimes the normal boundaries that he would put upon most of humanity, he doesn't put on with you. He gives you some liberties. But the standard was those three offices were to be separate. In Jesus, they were intentionally combined. Being the Messiah, it meant that he was in the line of David and had the privilege of sitting on the throne. That kingdom upon the kingdom that he would rule over as he sat on the throne would have no end, and the increase of the government would expand without stopping. Um, and he would, he would never be uprooted from that throne. And so that's what the Messiah, that's what the term meant. It's not the definition, but that's the function. He was also a prophet. Um, but the interesting thing about his prophetic mantle, and a prophet is somebody who hears from God and speaks on behalf of God to the people. Sometimes it's a thus says the Lord, God speaking. Sometimes it's just preaching. Uh, but, but most of the time in the Old Testament, you'll see somebody say this will happen and, and God says so, or thus says the Lord. And it's, it's a unique individual. Some of the prophets that we see in the Old Testament didn't write any books, but some of them did. And so we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Zechariah. Now the interesting thing about Jesus being a prophet is we never see him say, thus says the Lord. Because he was the Lord. <laughs> so what you see him saying is, truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say. And so when you are God, you only speak on your behalf. You don't need third person or a second person to interpret what you're saying and then as a priest he was born he was born of the house of Levi now before you who are theologically correct get too jumpy indeed he was born in the house of Judah but that was his, his stepfathers or Mm, how shall we define Joseph? Adoptive father's line. And it was in his bloodline. But because Joseph was of the tribe of Judah, we see in Matthew chapter 1 the genealogical line coming all the way through David to Christ and Joseph being the father. But if you look at the genealogical line in Luke, you'll see it coming through Levi. Now, it wasn't proper, and ladies, don't get mad at me. This was just the culture. It wasn't proper to lead with the genealogical line if you were a man through your mother's uh, line, if you wanted to prove stature or 
kingly line or the kind of, of nobility that society would, would really take note of. It didn't mean it was illegitimate or wrong. It just meant that's not what you wrote about when you tried to describe somebody and then hoped that they would ascribe to your position of this person being important. But Luke's genealogy goes through Mary's line. And Mary was of the house of Levi. And Levi was the household in which all the priesthood could, could function. Jesus was a priest. And so all three lines of government flow in this man and beautifully and so interchangeably that you barely even know it's happening and here we see a prayer in the first few verses Jesus is just talking about himself and the father he said oh I've done your will it's time for me now glorify yourself in my life and I, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to start with that every day that wouldn't be bad. I mean, you wouldn't go wrong with, God, it's time. It's time. It's time for you to manifest yourself in me and me to represent you. Glorify me today. As I'm driving to work, let your will be manifest in my life so much that when somebody cuts me off, I pray for them. <laughs> Lord, let your will be manifest in my life with my supervisor who gives me no respect, in fact, disrespects me. Those people who are taking credit for the work I did, Lord, glorify yourself in me. Praying for himself, because he realizes this is a moment. The greatest temptation of his life is about to assault him. It was tough when he was fasting 40 days out in the wilderness. And the enemy came to him and said, why don't you just take that rock and turn it into bread? You can do what you want to do. And that wouldn't be sin, would it? Well, no, it wouldn't be sin. But man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, not you. I don't follow a thing you say. I'm not inspired by you. The enemy, the devil, did all he could to try to bring him to the place where Jesus would follow him and not necessarily with something bad, with something that was needed. But in no way was Christ going to follow him. In no way. That was tough because after 40 days, and, and I, we, don't have any, we don't have any reason to believe that, that Jesus struggled with his weight. <laughs> so he was probably average size anyway. And you fast 40 days when you're average size? You look like death. Your body actually begins to eat itself. Organs, muscles, and the hunger is unbearable. Now, I know you're hungry by about 1 o'clock after, after you've eaten at 7 a.m. And, and you get a little cranky. I get it. But 40 days, it's a different kind of hunger because your body is saying, I'm dying. And at the end of 40 days, that's when the enemy came to Jesus and said, hungry? The temptation was great. Great. As bad as that was, Gethsemane was worse. Father, if there is any way that this cup could be removed from me, please, 
my will but yours. And he wasn't trying to get out of death. For that he came. My, my assertion is that he was trying to figure out how in the world can this happen where I'm not separate from you. I don't even know cosmologically what that means for the son not to be with the father and that we know on the cross Jesus cried out and said and we wouldn't know that the difficulty that the Godhead had Godhead meaning the father, son and Holy Spirit the difficulty that the Godhead had three in one, not three gods, three persons one God, the difficulty that the Godhead had in this cross experience unless Jesus articulated it from the cross we wouldn't know but he cried out with the, with the fifth statement fifth or sixth statement from the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me it says he became sin he didn't just take on sin yours mine all of the world Adam from every point on he became it it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know what that means, but it meant something that was so diabolical that it separated him in relationship from the Father. I don't even know what that means, but it's bad. And it's the only thing about which he cried out that was painful. And there was a lot of pain on the cross. Agony. In his soul, things happen when you're dying on a cross. Things happen when you're dying. But when you're dying on a cross, it's really bad. Nails near your palms, at your wrists, in your feet. And there's no way for you to comfortably push up because you need to push up. And that your lungs are collapsing because your arms are like this. And you've got fluid that's filling your lungs. And you do all you can to catch your breath by pushing up on the nail, which is excruciatingly painful. And your body is going through shock. It is, it is undeniably the worst form of execution humanity has ever invented for anyone who is subject to capital punishment. The Romans were just exquisitely, horribly masochistic. And it put on top of that, he didn't just die the death of a normal criminal. Then the sin of the world was placed on him. All of the pain you feel, the consequences, the judgment that you fear might come on you or does come on you when you do wrong. Multiply that by every person who has ever been on the planet. And it all fell on him. There would be reason to complain. Just a little. Like Brett might say, this hurts. God, this is really uncomfortable. Please stop this pain. Not once did he complain. Not once. It says like a lamb led to slaughter, he did not cry out. But the one thing he did complain about, why do I have to be separate from you? That was his, God, if there is any way that you can let this cup pass, Please, because that's what I dislike the most, the idea of me not being with you. 
Oh, may we get there. May we get there. May we hate the idea that sin might separate us from God so much that we sweat, it says Jesus did, great drops of blood in the prayer that he prayed in Gethsemane just before the people were about to take him to be crucified. He was praying with such agony over this one thought that he sweat great drops of blood. And psychiatrists will tell you when the stress is so great, the capillaries will actually break in your forehead and they will come out through your pores as you sweat. That's how stressful it was for Jesus to think about being separated from the Father. Yet, he still said, glorify yourself in me. I've come to do your will, O God. Preparing his own soul for the most agonizing moment of his life. And then, uh, as he's looking at this dark corridor of future, which would be the next 24 hours, he says, eh, okay, I'm good. I know I got to go through it. Now, let me concentrate on all these knuckleheads. These folk who have to carry on the mission because they really don't know what they're doing. And if left to themselves, they'll blow it. So, Father, I'm asking you to help them. Help them. If we look at John 17, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 verses. About five or six are about Jesus. The rest of them are about everybody else. If we were to listen, if we were to have just a, a microphone in your prayer life, how would it look? In terms of the percentage of, of verses that you pray, concentration, would it be five about you? And that about you is just glorify yourself and me, Father, not pay my light bill, not heal my body. Glorify yourself. If you're concentrating on just the Father doing what he needs to do in you. That's amazing. But then the rest of it was all about everybody else. Jesus really left us an example on the concentration of what our prayer life needs to be. What it needs to look like. And last week we talked about the Lord's Prayer. And that we know, our Father who art in heaven, the one that we have really titled as the prayer of example that he gave us to pray. But this one here is the way the Lord prayed. We call that the Lord's Prayer, but this is the Lord praying. God, help them to be one. It really takes a miracle for human beings to not just be together, but stay together. A miracle. How many people can you count other than your mama and your daddy, your family, people with your last name? How many people can you count that you've been with for 25? I'm sorry, some of you are only 24. I get it. (laughs) How many good friends do you really have? I mean, the kind of friends that defend you and don't stab you in the back. And don't leave you in a lurch. And you can count on. You're there for them. They're there for you. If you have one, you are a rich human being. Wealthy are you. Because they are few and far between. And not should we, we should not just look 
to try to find that person. We ought to be that person. It's hard to find somebody with whom you can be unified. And it's ideal to find a person, like I said, who won't stab you in the back, who will speak well of you and defend you. But the problem is that perfect friend does not exist. And so when you find the friend who you think is the best you can find, you find out they're bad. But that's the best you can do. What are you going to do then? Because that's the best all of humanity can do, is to find the bad. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle betrayal? How are you going to handle somebody who's supposed to be something to you? It couldn't be in that moment. Everybody is imperfect. It's hard to find unity and to keep it. It is hard. I've been married... How long have I been married? 32 years. And last night, Cynthia and I had a wonderful moment of intense fellowship. For about two and a half hours. Trying to figure out how to be one. After 32 years. After 32 years. You got to work at being one. It takes a lot of work. And I, I, I'm not fond of popping bubbles. And so those of you who have a very romantic and Hollywoodistic idea about what marriage and relationships are, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the first thing I, I talk about when, when I have to counsel couples that want to be married premarital stuff, I say, I want you to know that person who is sitting next to you is a criminal. (laughs) They have broken almost every law of God. And they're really good at it. When they do it, they, they, they hide that they do it. You don't even know they've done it. And now that you are really close to them, they will do it on you. And they will be really good at it. As best as they try to love you, they are flawed. The woman is usually in tears by this point. (laughs) And what I'm doing is bringing them into reality rather than allowing reality to slap them in the face with unfulfilled expectations later. And they wake up woke. One Tuesday morning, lying there in bed, staring at the ceiling, hearing their spouse snoring like thousands of pigs. (laughs) What have I done? (laughs) It's hard to be one. You have to work at it. And without God, the best people can be at being one is tolerating one another because the the results of doing the other, the alternative, are worse. Most couples stay together because they don't want a divorce. Harder that way. We need to stay together for the kids. I don't want a life separate. Very few couples grow in love with one another. Very few friends do. 
The closer you get to somebody, the more opportunity you have to leave. I'll say it again. The closer you get to somebody, the more opportunity you will have to leave. It takes a lot of work. And you've got to employ forgiveness and understanding and kindness and patience and endurance. And you better come packed in your tool belt with every one of them. You don't leave one benefit that God has given you in terms of character and application of his principles into that relationship. Because if you leave it at home, you're going to realize later, oh, I should have brought that with me because I need it now. And the alternative will be you will react in such a way that they now, the other party, will have to use that which you should have used on them. But they left it at home too. And now, y'all are doing this. God has so many remedies. But if we ignore them, we will find ourselves far from one. Lord, help them to be one. Help them. Now listen to me. Jesus is God. He is spending the last few hours of his life talking to the Father about things you would think are really, really important to say. And he's deciding to spend most of his time on the disciples because he realizes they are the hope for the world. And if I don't talk to you about them, they will, they will mess up and not complete anything I've got to say. My point is this. If Jesus, who is God, thought it was important to pray, what are you doing? How much time do you spend in prayer on your relationships? How much time do you spend in prayer on us? Lord, help grace be one You mostly think, well, the staff will fix it. Pastor Brett will give a good sermon and everybody will listen and obey. (laughs) The first might be true. I might give a good one, but listening and obeying? I don't know. You'd be surprised. I walk out here and people tell me what they thought I said. (laughs) I'm thinking, you heard that? Are you kidding me? I don't know what you hear and I don't know what you're going to do. If Jesus thought it was so critical that he had to apply three quarters of his last prayer to God about us, what are we praying about? I beg you, turn it up a notch. All of us need to pray about this oneness thing. And he said, Lord, I want you, I want you to cover the ones that are here, but also those to whom they preach who will believe in what they say. Jesus is not just praying for for the 12, the 11, the other guy did some stuff. He wasn't around anymore. He wasn't just praying for the 11. He was praying for you and me. He was thinking way down the road. He was thinking multi-generational. In in his most agonizing moment, he was thinking about you. Thank you. What's what's beautiful is this. We have the confidence that these simple prayers, if they are accurate, which they are because he's 
God Almighty. That if the same words and motivation were used, that they're going to be accurate for you. Because it worked. I got here. You got here. We got saved. And we are doing that which he asked us to do. We're doing that for which he, he prayed and said, God, please work this in them. Help them to be unified. We got black people and white people in the same building. On the same staff. Really liking one another. I, I have black pastors. Come to, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much unusual that... Um, Multi-diversity happens in our society because we have to live in a diverse society. But when people have a choice about where they can go, you have a choice about where you can work, but you really don't. After you say yes, you do it for the job. You do it for the money. You do it for the opportunity. But most people who are trying to get employed someplace don't walk through the office and take a survey on how diverse it is and decide whether they want to work there. They come in and say, well, this is what i got to deal with because I want my job. When you come to church, you've got like 5,000 choices and you choose to come here. That's pretty miraculous in the southern state of Virginia where you know you're going to have to jump over some thresholds that are uncomfortable. Why? Because that's who we are. And that's what we work at. And I have black pastors coming to me all the time. Because it's not unusual for black folks to go to white churches. Not unusual. Doesn't happen as much as black folks going to black churches. But it's not unusual. Why? Because, well, we're we're kind of used to going to Safeway. (laughs) I mean, most of what is owned out there is white. And so we're used to living in a white world. It's not unusual for us. We're the minority. And we have to do this. I'm just giving, I'm reporting. That's all I'm doing this morning, reporting. (laughs) But it is unusual for a white person to go to a black environment because they are the majority, we're the minority. And so so to see a white person go into a black church, all the black people go, hmm? They made a decision today. (laughs) They made a decision today. (laughs) And then to stay. They made a lot of decisions. And so it's not unusual for a black person to have a white pastor. Unusual, but not that unusual. It is unusual for a white person to have a black pastor. People scratch their head. Say, how'd that happen? Somebody decided, we're going to work on this oneness thing. We're going to work on it. We're going to find the target that the enemy is trying to destroy. We're going to find the thing that he's trying to leverage for his own gain, that divisive nature that he just instills in everybody that gravitates them toward the thing they like the most, and it may not be. They don't even like, it's not like they don't like those folk over there. It's just like they like this better. They're not prejudiced. They're not bigoted. They just like greens. I'll say it better. They like sweet potato pie, not pumpkin. All the black folks know what I'm talking about. You see pumpkin pie at the store, you say, mm. 
Knock off, knock off right there, knock off. That ain't the real thing. <laughs> but all of us, black folk are enjoying pumpkin pie. <coughs> Tiffany's up here singing. Oh, that's pumpkin, but it got a little, little nutmeg in it. <laughs> There's a little spice to it. We're working it intentionally because there's somebody out there who's not in here who needs to know that the Father sent the Son for this purpose. Are you listening to me? And when we do this, we find ourselves more in God. Father, help them to be one. That you and I, just like we're one, they will be in us. Help them to be in us. When we do this intentionally using scriptural principles, not just trying to get along, not just sociological tolerance, but real oneness, trying to figure out who are you so I can be better at who I am. When we do that, it requires that we find God. Because I've got to suppress some stuff that I'm, I, I really enjoy, I might like, I, I prefer, in order for me to prefer you. I care about you. And right now, I want you comfortable rather than me. And when you get comfortable, when you find out that it's okay to hang around me even though I'm different, then we built something architecturally that allows people to see Jesus in us like nothing else. They will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Help them to be one. And you talk about a diverse group. Now listen, I know all the disciples were Jewish. I get it. And so they all pretty much had the same cultural background. They all spoke the same language. They all understood the same religious background. They came from one genetic stock. I get that. But you talk, you talk about different personalities and, 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 and biases. I'm just going to take one because I don't have time. Matthew, he was a tax collector. Now, most of the people that Jesus chose were from the region of Galilee. One guy we think was from the region of Judah, and that was Judas Iscariot. But everybody else was from the region of Galilee, probably within a 15-mile radius of where Jesus had his home office in Capernaum. And Matthew was the main, one of the main tax collectors up there in that region of Galilee, which is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem. He had been taking these fellows' money for a long time. And taking more than he should, because that's what tax collectors did. And when you collected taxes, you didn't collect them for the Jews. You collected them for Rome. And if you were a Jewish person collecting taxes from your own people and giving it to Rome, and then on top of that, taking more than you should, do you know how much you were hated by all of your Jewish patriots? Because they considered you a traitor. Now, Jesus could have chosen anybody he wanted. There were folks who tried to volunteer, and he said, well, you've got to pass through this this vetting process here, foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests, son of man has no place to lay his head. You still want to follow? Some people, he said, you follow me. Some people volunteered, others he chose. Matthew, he chose. He was collecting taxes. Jesus said, get up, follow me. Why did he choose a man who would be the most offensive to everybody else on his staff? Because he wanted them to understand. I know y'all all came from the same genetic stock. I get it. I know that you speak the same language. You got the same culture. 
but I need to spice it up a little bit so you'll know how messed up you really are. And what, what, the, what, what, what bitterness you've got on the inside. And you need to deal with it here because you're going to have to deal with it out there. And if you work at it in here, it'll translate by way of export out there easier. So he put somebody in there that all of them would hate. And then says, be one with him. But he made my, I had to foreclose on my house because of him. We got evicted because of him. Mm-hmm. Be one with him. <laughs> So there may not have been the ethnic thing. That would be dealt with later with Paul and that Jew and Gentile would have to come together. But name your problem. You are always going to have issue with somebody and they with you. The prayer remains the same. Daddy, help them be one. Help them be one. And what we've got here is not perfect, but it's special. And we work hard at trying to be one. Because the world needs to know that Jesus was sent by the Father. He wasn't just another prophet. What happens here is supernatural. What happens here can only come from heaven. It's not a good idea. It's not just a better philosophy. It is the will of Almighty God. And that transmitted through the very Son of God who gave his life for us and rose again on our behalf. We get the privilege of manifesting that truth to a world that doesn't know how to be one. No clue. They barely know how to tolerate one another. And the issues that we deal with in America with respect to ethnic tensions, (laughs) I don't like them. But you travel the world, listen to me, at least we have tension. There are some places where there is none. And it's just accepted. You are less than me. And nobody has any protests. There's no voice to be heard. Just the way it is. You go to India, eh, this doesn't happen. You go to Saudi Arabia, this doesn't happen. Some folks are completely invisible and they have no rights. None, none. There's no Bill of Rights in Saudi Arabia. There's no Bill of Rights. We don't have it perfect. We got issues. But at least we got tension. We can actually say something. We can do something. We can vote folk out, vote folk in. And so when I see the problems, I say, yes, at least we have things that we have in the open and we can discuss them. And may I say, it will never be perfect, ever, except in here. And when I say in here, I'm talking about the church. Not that we work relationships perfectly, but when we, when we fail and we mess up, we have a perfect remedy. And we don't quit applying the remedy. So when there are mess ups, we say, oh, I got to fix it that. And we don't say bye. We say, hey, let's get closer on this issue. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. I'm praying for you to help us. Understand what it means to be one.